We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Soft Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. Uh, with me in the studio this week are my co-hosts, uh, Neil Radley and Pierre Lescaudron. Bonjour. Hello. And we have a special guest this week. His name is Harrison Curley. Keely. Keely. Um, Harrison is a writer and editor for Red Pill Press, and he is currently working on a book uh, tentatively titled, titled Mind Matters, uh, the book takes a hard look at the modern scientific worldview, its inherent absurd, absurdities, the facts it ignores, and a possible way out of, of its seemingly insoluble problems via information theory. So we're going to be talking to Harrison about information theory. So welcome to the show, Harrison. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on again. It's great, it's great to be back. Excellent. Welcome. Here. So I'm going to let the listeners in on a little secret that... Earlier on, we were talking uh, with Harrison, uh, or I was talking with Harrison about the show and about things, and we were talking about a kind of hot topic that's going on at the minute, which is this missing Malaysian Airlines flight. And Harrison said to me that, funnily enough, that's kind of related in a strange way to the topic of this show. And I was like, huh? Information theory and missing planes? What are you talking about? As he said, well... I'll uh, keep it for the show, and I'll tell you on the show. So that's probably a good question to open the show with, which is, you know, Harrison, you said to me that this uh, this missing plane may be related, so maybe just can you explain that? What is, what, what's going on with this missing plane, and what has it got to do with um, information theory? Sure. Well, there, there's a few things to get into that kind of, will kind of lead up to the answer. But, uh, well, first of all, you know, we've got to say that the, this plane right now, as it is, is really a mystery. You know, no one knows what happened to it. And um, the officials are confused. You know, there's this search going on. Um, but really, just from what we've heard, this thing just appears to have, you know, disappeared out of plain sight. Just, it's just vanished. And we've got, like, conflicting reports from, uh, like, Malaysian officials and all over about the radar and, you know, when certain systems were turned off when the plane was visible, um, you know, using other systems, other radar. Um, there's one satellite that, some, uh, one satellite ping that put it, um, you know, west of Malaysia. Um, there was a sighting of it west of Malaysia. Um, apparently it, you know, just diverted off course shortly after its systems went off, and, you know, that's the last that any, like, conclusive, um, you know, knowledge about it uh, came through. So right now we're in, this, in a place where we really don't know what happened to it, and it's kind of this, this enigma. I mean, you know, how does a, a plane just disappear? Now, of course, mm-hmm. you know, planes, planes have disappeared, um, you know, ever since there's been flight. So, you know, um, many things can happen. You can have just, you know, some kind of failure, and the plane can go down, you know, in the middle of the ocean or, you know, some remote location. So, you know, planes can disappear. There can be just kind of mundane explanations for them. Um, even you know when never even if they've never been found, um, but there's also kind of like a 
a strain, high strangeness factor, just a, a kind of weirdness that comes up. And there's uh, there's been a history of that kind of thing. Um, like there was Flight 19. Now that was um, a flight, you know, after World War II, um, where five Avenger bombers went missing off the coast of Florida, I believe. They were on a like a routine training mission, and um, they flew out. And then there was radio contact between the the, the five planes and uh, you know their base. And the the pilots were saying, um, you know, all of a sudden they just uh, they kind of lost their bearings. They couldn't tell what direction they were heading in. They they couldn't see land, um, and they just couldn't figure out what was going on. Now, John Keel, he's one of my f- favorite writers on all kind of weird topics like this, and he writes about it. He gives a little summary that I've got here. One of the interesting things he says is that, um, well, first of all, the Avengers were one of the first. World War II planes to be equipped with radar. So radar actually on the plane, uh, that was pretty difficult before then to um, even to put um, like two-way radio sets in a plane. Those were, you know, that was high technology at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were equipped with radar. They were also equipped with um, what was called a radio detection finder. So these planes were meant to actually be able to go and drop their bombs and then um, be able to um, triangulate their location using any two radio transmitters um, around the area and then basically get a a read on where they were to guide them back to where they were going. So these planes were actually designed to be, you know, um, unlosable in the sense that they couldn't get lost. They could find their way back. Mm -hmm. Um, They also had two compasses, you know, a standard compass, magnetic compass, and then a gyro compass. And the gyro compass, apparently, you know, it's turned, uh, it's a small turbine turned by a current of air, so it's not affected by magnetism. But these guys were saying that all of their compa- all their compasses were out of whack, so they couldn't get a read with their compasses on where they were, where they were going. And then there was radio interference, and then they just lost contact with them completely. And the thing is, is that, uh, like, they never found... Uh, the remains of these ships or these planes, they just disappeared. They even sent out another plane to search for them. That one got lost, too, and it was allegedly um, it ex- allegedly, allegedly exploded in midair or something like that. Um, I don't know hmm. if there was any evidence for that or what the, you know, what the, the real story, the official story was. You know, all I know for sure about that from what I've read is that, you know, so all six of these planes disappeared, and the, the first five were pretty strange, just because they seemingly, you know, they, they had this this weird situation where they, you know, lost totally lost their bearings, which was odd. They didn't know what was going on. Then there's this radio interference, and then they just disappear, and no mm-hmm. one can find them. Apparently, this uh, freaked out the the U.S. government, and um, the way Keel tells the story, it kind of inspired the first kind of um, big post-war intelligence group. Um, Truman started the Central Intelligence Group, Central Intelligence Group, in January 1946, because there wasn't really a, um, you know, a consolidated intelligence network in the states at the time after World War II. Mm-hmm. And so Keel thinks that um, that was kind of inspired by Flight 19 because they realized they didn't have a system set up to deal with these kind of events if they were to happen, you know, all over the place. But the main mm-hmm. point of that. Is that that's just one example of these of a plane disappearing, and Keel and many other writers give all kinds of other examples that are as strange, even more strange. Like for example, 
Um, some planes will just disappear um, and never be found. Others, the planes will be found later on, um, landed in these obscure locations um, with no, uh, but with no people. Uh, the people have disappeared. So the pilots. So the plane will just be sitting there. It might have, you know, half a tank of fuel. Um, no sign of any kind of uh, damage or fire or struggle. It's just this plane sitting in the middle of nowhere um, with no one around it. He, he even gives one example where they found a plane. Uh, let me see if I can find the the quote for it. It's really interesting. They found the plane, and there were footprints outside the plane that led, you know, a few feet away from the plane, and then the footprints just stopped, wow. <laughs> which is uh, pretty pretty weird. Um, but um, my main point in talking about these is that there's strange disappearances happen pretty often, and it's not just planes. Um, like, there's a series of books um, written by, uh, what's his first name, David Paulides, um, called yeah. Missing 411. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he, he, he investigates all kinds of, mere, of missing persons cases that happen in the States, like in parks, uh, national parks, and just really weird disappearances where people will be walking, you know, walking through one of these parks, one of them will be ahead maybe 10 meters, turn a corner, the people behind him turn the corner, and then there's just no sight of the guy. And it's, uh, you know, often children. And But th- these cases, just there's a ton of them, and they remain unsolved, and they're just really enigmatic, really strange. Like there's something weird going on. And mm. Keel, of course, Keel, was, or, do you have something to ask? No, go, uh, go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, so Keel um, was into all kinds of these weird things. He wrote about... Uh, a bunch of them. Actually, I've got a couple here that are pretty interesting. One was um, a Kore- in the Korean War, a British wing commander, Jay Baldwin. Um, in March 1952, he was flying, um, I, I, I think it was some kind of weather reconnaissance mission, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. the people he was flying with saw his plane enter a cloud and then never right. come out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was never explained. He was, uh, you know, presumed missing or missing, presumed dead. But uh, you know, no no wreckage, no you know nothing. Just disappeared out of plain mm-hmm. air. And then there's a, another weird case. Apparently, this one took place. Uh, it was a British regiment um, near Salva Bay in Turkey in 1915. I'll just read the short paragraph here that Keel writes. A group of men later signed affidavits that they had watched the 1-4th Norfolk re- Regiment march into a peculiar brown cloud and hugged on the ground in their path, that hugged on the ground in their path, and that none of them reappeared on the other side. After a few moments, the witnesses said, the cloud rose and flew away, joining a group of similar clouds, which then sailed off against the wind. No one from that regiment was ever seen again. 800 men missing or taken from the face of the earth. And mm-hmm. so there are just all these kind of weird happenings that go on. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a long list of um, yeah. of aerial disappearances, and this is planes, you know, basically yeah. aircraft of some description that have never, no trace of them have ever been found. All I know is the last location for most of them where they were. You can find it on uh, at uh, Fount of Wisdom Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> there's a list of aerial disappearances and you can see a long list of planes there but there was one actually in particular that I was um, thinking about just as you were talking there was uh, very similar it was back in, um, 19, in 1978 and it was a guy called Frederick Valentich 
Valentich. Yeah. Uh, he was flying in, in Australia, in the, southern Australia, on a small kind of Cessna of some description. And uh, he, you know, this was a kind of like a UFO type encounter where he said that he had seen a, um, some kind of aircraft. He was trying to describe this aircraft that was tailing him, following him, coming close. He wasn't sure what it was. And um, the, the last... Um, the last kind of uh, communications I had from him uh, was through, through the radio was uh, that he was experiencing engine problems and he was going to proceed to some location and, and then there was a brief silence uh, and then, which was followed by 17 seconds of an unidentified noise described as being metallic or scraping sounds uh, and that reminded me of uh, well, first of all, it reminded me of these strange noises in the sky. I don't know if that's in any way related, but these kind of strange noises that have been heard around the world, which could be described as kind of metallic groaning or scraping noises. But also in a lot of UFO literature, uh, where that kind of sound, metallic scraping sounds, have been associated with, uh, with, with UFO sightings or simply anomalous, not necessarily sightings, but anomalous kind of uh, events. Uh, one, one example is the, the book uh, The Skinwalker, uh, the hunt for the skinwalker, skinwalker about the skinwalker ranch, uh, where that was just, that sound was described, and here it's described as part of a missing plane. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, Keel was a journalist, um, and in the 60s, in 1965 or 66, he got a um, he got a job writing for Playboy magazine, and they wanted him to write an article on UFOs. And he'd never written on UFOs before, um, but he uh, so he took the you know he took the he took the job. He was going to do the piece. He researched it and researched it, and he never ended up publishing the the article. But it ended up leading to him writing um, his book Operation Trojan Horse and writing you know hundreds of other articles for other publications. And you know from that point on, he was almost exclusively. Um, devoted to you know researching, investigating UFOs and stuff like that. So he makes the connection between UFOs and a lot of these strange disappearances. And you know not um, not a lot of people did at that time. It was kind of a lot of the stuff that he was writing about was really um, kind of fringe, even in the field of so-called ufology. And um, it's only been in, in recent years that a lot of the things that he's been talking about have been have become more mainstream, um, you know, in that field. So he was talking about you know strange abductions and, and disappearances in relation to UFOs. And one interesting thing that I think you know might relate is that he was talking about these this, these mysterious disappearances and UFO abductions. But one of the things that he observed um, and made a connection with is first of all, you know, in this so-called alien abduction phenomenon. Now, this will be, um, you know, it started, uh, the first big cases were in the 60s, um, you know, gain speed in the 70s, and then it really took off in the 80s with, uh, you know, Whitley Stryver's book and Bud Hopkins, who, the artist who um, wrote the book Missing Time and really brought this kind of thing to the mainstream, which was the idea that um, some people might remember these strange events that seem, you know, they, they fit this, um, you know, what we now can recognize as the alien abduction narrative, or they might experience um, a short period of amnesia, what they've come to call missing time. 
So, you know, you'll be driving down the road, um, you know, at night or some, um, or, or during the day. And then, you know, you might have just this weird kind of blackout, which is pretty common, you know, just dissociating while driving. But then um, you might be with your family in the car. And then three hours later, you know, you find yourself on a different road. Um, it's, you know, it's three hours later than it should be. The, you know, the trip should have, or, you know, you get to your location, but you get there three hours late. So you've got this mm-hmm. weird missing time where it's like, and you've got total amnesia of all this time. And um, so Keel was writing about that. And the thing he observed is that there's also cases, um, you know, apparently unrelated to this, um, these memories of alien abductions, of just people, A, going missing, B, turning up, but either turning up in really distant locations or, you know, up to weeks or months later with no memory of what's been going on in between. So these are like really extreme cases of, um, of, what might you know? Maybe it's a similar phenomenon as what's going on with whatever's behind these you know alien abduction memories, and so so I I, I took a look into this because it, it fascinated me the the idea of um, you know these people disappearing and then having <clears throat> almost total retrograde amnesia, and I found this one interesting case because uh, it happens pretty much every year. Um, if you look through the news, you'll find at least one case every year of someone who turns up. In some country, um, usually they're you know they they're usually they turn up in a place um, that's not where they're from. So they'll turn up in a different city or a different state, maybe in a, even a different country. But they'll have absolutely no memory of who they are, how they got there, where they've been. Um, usually we end up figuring out who these people are, and you know we can construct some kind of narrative. Um, the psychiatrists call it retrograde amnesia, and you know, they've got a whole a whole bunch of brain mechanisms that they explain, you know, or that they give as an explanation for why this occurs. And they say it's usually uh, some kind of big trauma that brings on this amnesia. But they don't really, in none of these cases really can, or in few of them, can they really identify what actually happened. Because, you, first of all, these people don't have any memories of what happened. And if, um, you know, so it's really hard to investigate and to find out all the events that occurred up to the time that they lost the memory. Uh, uh-huh. It's just, it's a, it's a nightmare trying to figure out the logistics of it. And there's actually one case, um, his name's, well, he, he thinks his name is Benjamin, Benjamin Kyle. And he turned up in Georgia in 2004. Um, and they, he was found in, in the back behind a Burger King near the dumpster. He was, I believe he was naked he had uh, like a, a bruise or a wound on his head, so the, they thought that he'd either been um, assaulted or that he'd fallen on his head. And when he woke up, he had no idea who he, who he was. And mm-hmm. no one knows who he is to this day. They've used uh, DNA tests. They've put you know, calls out to, you know, he, they've made a documentary about him. And so after, when that was 2004, so for 10 years, they still haven't been able to determine who this guy is. And so there's these weird things that happen. Yeah. And, yeah. That's very, very strange. Does he have yeah. an American accent at least? Is he probably American? Yeah, no, I don't think there's, they, they think that he's American. He remembered, like, he, he thought, like, he thinks that his name is Benjamin Kyle. Like, that just kind of rang true for him. And he remembered that... 
well, he, he thinks he remembered that his birthday was exactly 10 years before, I think, Michael Jackson's birthday. So he, he had an idea of when he thought he was born. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. It, well, that's kind of like, there's another case. I think it was last year or two years ago. A guy wakes up in Sweden, um, yeah. has no clue who he is, but he doesn't speak Swedish or something. He speaks Czech. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to find out who he is, and you know, the, he he has a kind of backstory. It's not complete amnesia. He has some points of reference, but they don't sync up with anything that they should do. I.e., someone from Sweden. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of other cases yeah. like that too. Yeah. Yeah, I was Queen I was searching through the SOD archives because I was actually looking for that one that you're talking about, but I couldn't find it. But I found you know several yeah. others. Yeah. That are they've all got they've all got similarities like that, but uh, you know, no one knows exactly why these happen, but they happen every year. And Keel was writing about them; he was saying they happened every year, and he he said often it happens in July for some reason. So, to come back to the plane, mm-hmm. are are we talking about this because of the possibility that there's something out of the ordinary? high strangeness to this plane disappearing. I mean, I've seen one mention of it on a mainstream report. Not, you know, derogatory. It's taking this into serious consideration because when you've nothing else to go on, you, you're going to have to chalk it up to something truly out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of all we can go with when there's no physical evidence of a crash, right? Yeah, and... um like because I don't know what happened to the plane, and you know I don't think anyone that's well, you know, someone might know, but uh, you know, no one knows publicly. You know, no one's given a a, a a full explanation that's you know adequate to the facts that we know about. So my point is merely that I don't think we should rule it out as a possibility, and not only that, that I think we should actively you know consider these things as possibilities, and that kind of get gets back to Joe's question about how this all relates to, um, you know, the topic about information theory and, um, you know, why your mind is not your brain, is that um, in, the, in the current paradigm, the current scientific paradigm, these things are impossible and you can't talk about them and you can't even consider them as possibilities because they're impossible. And this has been kind of the, the main uh, scientific response to any kind of a um, experience of this sort, so kind of like an anecdotal, um, you know, personal experience that might involve something that we'd call paranormal, or B, the actual scientific experiments and research that have been done on these kind of uh, phenomena, what we call, you know, parapsychology or psi. The response to these has been that it's impossible, (laughs) therefore the, the research must be false and it can't be true. Now, this is kind of backwards thinking. Um, traditionally, you know, if, if we look at how science has operated, it, it's been by examining the facts, so examining things that actually occur that we can observe happening, and then trying to fit, figure out a theory that accounts for those facts. Um, that's empirical thinking. Now, this is more uh, parag- paradigmatic thinking, where we have an idea, a theory, and any facts that don't fit into that theory are dismissed or they try to like um, wiggle them in um, into the theory somehow to try to account for them in ways that the theory allows, but which 
really amount to no more than you know dismissing the phenomena in the first place. So I think we should uh, take these things seriously um, and, and look at them, and you know that that can lead into a whole bunch of stuff, um, which is the stuff I'm I'm working on and and writing about. And uh, it's all the more surprising that mainstream science dismisses those phenomena as uh, impossible when we know that uh, human beings, militaries, have been able to uh, reproduce similar phenomena like mm-hmm. during the Philadelphia experiment with uh, some basic tools, I mean, strong electromagnetic uh, uh, signals. And uh, from the examples we have mentioned previously, there are some uh, evidence that suggests there was electromagnetic disturbance, like during flight 19, the compass getting crazy, for image 370, the plane apparently U-turning, going up and then down, apparently and the transponders going off. Like, yeah, yeah transponders going off. And, uh, me, that could, that could it, say it was an electromagnetic thing and not necessarily, you know, a, a hijacking. True. And uh, even the metallic... Uh, sounds that Joe mentioned previously, uh, he talked about strange sounds, electrophonics that have been demonstrated to be uh, perturbation in the magnetic fields of uh, electromagnetic nature as well. So mm-hmm. there is some ground to uh, to consider those phenomena as, uh, as possible. Yeah, and, th- and that's kind of the strange thing is that um, you can even get, well, he's a mainstream scientist, but um, he talks about weird things. That's a uh, I believe his name is pronounced Michio Kaku, the physicist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he writes about, you know, all kinds of weird possibilities, you know, wormholes and, you know, going in and out of dimensions and what might, you know, uh, what a hyperdimensional being might be that lives in four dimensions as opposed to three dimensions. And so mm-hmm. there are all of these possibilities out there, but at the same time, um, the, at the same time, they're, they're, they use the same paradigm to dismiss them. Now, what I think that comes down to a lot of the time is not necessarily that the science says it's impossible. Um, it's that they're, they're the scientists' own philosophical assumptions about science and about reality get into the picture. And so even if there's a, you know, a scientific corollary or you know, correlation between these things like electromagnetism or you know, these uh, other dimensions or something that can conceivably make it possible, there's something else that makes them see it as impossible, and you know that comes down to the scientific worldview of materialism, because materialism is a really weird ideology. Um, you know, I've been trying to wrap my head around how it came to be and how 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 people can actually believe in it with such full force when um, when you really start looking into it, it it really doesn't make much sense at all. <laughs> So I think that's what it comes down to is the actual philosophical assumptions that make them just think these things are impossible. And then that translates into this weird kind of um, almost evangelical zeal with which, you know, the the so-called militant atheists will go around and, uh, you know, propagate their ideology and you can see this on on wikipedia all the time like there's been a there was a controversy recently with rupert sheldrake now rupert sheldrake uh, is a biologist who who's you know been the center of controversy ever since he published his first book um on morphic resonance and but just recently there's been uh, this thing on wikipedia where um his the the bio that's on wikipedia is totally biased 
and you know against him, show, you know, telling, saying that he's a pseudoscientist. There's nothing behind his ideas. Basically, we shouldn't take this guy seriously. And any time that you that anyone tries to edit that article just to make it more balanced, um, there's you know a team of editors that automatically reverts all those changes. You know, puts it back. <clears throat> they just will not allow um, uh, a balanced like portrayal of you know who Rupert Sheldrake is. And I just I, I find it really strange. What what does it actually come down to in terms of this debate between, you know, let's say the people, the scientific community and the, what do you call them, militant, militant atheists mm-hmm. and those who, like Sheldrake, I mean, what are what are those like Sheldrake called? Do they have a, have a name? Well, they've got a, f- uh, a few names. Um, I think one way to approach it is to 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 look at how they view consciousness and what the role of the mind is and basically what is the um, we can call it the ontological statuses of the mind like what is the nature of mind okay um, it's the idea like you, like like in, in the show description here it's it's uh, why your um, why your why brain your is, not, is not your mind and it's the idea that the, the consciousness or con- human conscious awareness is located and confined to the cranium. Yeah. Right. And that basically, well, it comes down to a couple of things. Um, one, it's called materialism for for a reason, and that's because, according to this, it's really a philosophical um, worldview, is that matter is the only thing that exists, and matter being like mass right. and energy. So, um, you know, th- and there's a history for why you know it had, it developed this way, but what it comes down to is that the only thing that science can study is um, like physical interactions. So when we look at, you know, particles or atoms or molecules, it's the forces, you know, binding them together, holding them apart, pushing them apart, pulling them together, that sort of thing. And it's, it's all these what we call objective, um, objective qualities about matter. So these are the things that we can measure, that we can see happening um, but what we can't study are the so-called subjective qualities. Now, we all have subjective qualities, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation, you know, hearing the words, um, you know, thinking what we're going to say, or, um, you know, any kind of sensory perception, we have a, a, a sensation of it, a perception of it, we have an experience of it. And, um, you know, philosophers will call it either subjectivity, subjectivity or agency or, um, you know, experience, um, being a um, well, those are some of them. So basically, we've got this awareness, and we can't, or traditionally, science hasn't been able to measure this awareness. It's not a physical thing, so we can't. Mm-hmm. So the the problem um, now, the, the problem comes down to trying to explain what is um, you know a subjective thing that is that isn't physical, you know, just the experience of awareness. Um, in terms of physical properties, but they're totally different categories. Um, you know, you have what it feels like to be alive, to be something, you know, uh, a person. You've got that, those experiences, and then you've got, you know, what you can measure about people. So you've got their behaviors and, you know, the, what's going on in their bodies, what's going on in their brains. But we can't measure what a person's thinking or what a person's feeling. 
Now, this has led to a whole a whole history of of theories of consciousness and theories of what mind is. Yeah, um, you know, and if we look in the history of psychology, we've had uh, a series of these of these explanations. You know, starting with behaviorism. So the really hardcore behaviorists argued that there was no such thing as consciousness per se. All that really existed were the behaviors that we could observe and measure. So when a, a person smiled, for example, they weren't necessarily feeling happy because there's that doesn't make sense. Feeling happy is you know a subjective quality, and there's no such thing as subjective qualities because all that all that exists is matter. So the only thing that really happens is that they're smiling. They're doing a physical thing, and that that led through a series of theories to where nowadays we've got the computational theory of mind, where basically mind is like an information processor, like a computer, where we have an input. Um, and that can be, you know, any influence that's coming from the outside world and, you know, acting on your nerves that goes to your brain. And then we've got this mysterious information processing that goes on and that it fulfills a function in the body that, uh, that produces an output, and that output will be a behavior. Now, it, it really doesn't, you know, while it's more complex and it takes into account uh, more of the advances in cognitive science and uh, you know, the actual neurology and neurochemistry of the brain, it's really not a lot different than behaviorism was like 100 years ago. And um, there's a, a, psychology, a psychologist named Edward Kelly who wrote a book recently with a bunch of others called Irreducible Mind as a, a kind of big criticism of these theories. And I, I like the way he put it. I don't have the exact quote with me right now, but he basically said that the history of these, uh, each of these theories has just been a less, unsuccessful version of the previous one that doesn't really take into account um, you know the all the facts that we have about consciousness and the the most important one of it of which is that we are that we do have awareness and experience so they've just been you know they they leave that out there they're, it's like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole it just it won't work because they're talking about two completely different things now when we go to the when we get to the brain um, so we've got this activity in the brain. We've got neurons firing and all this stuff. Now, one of the theories that, um, you know, it's still kind of popular. It's kind of, I think it's been kind of subsumed by computational theory of mind. was called identity theory. And that basically said that when you have a brain state, that brain state is completely equivalent to the experience that you're having of that brain state. So right away we run into a logical you know, problem that David Ray Griffin talks about in his books, um, that you know, we can't talk about something objective and, or something subjective in terms of objective qualities. It's a, it's, it's a category mistake. We just, it's comparing apples and oranges. Well, even then, apples and oranges are, you know, have more in common than uh, a brain and the experience of thinking and feeling and, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. So... The idea is that they're identical. Now, what does that mean? If they're identical, that means that what we think of as our mind, what we think of as thinking, can't have any real causal effect on the brain because they're the same thing. So the, the implication is kind of that mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain. Mm-hmm. So this is what John Cyril, uh, he's a philosopher uh, of mind, this is the conclusion he came to is that like 
that mind is this physical epiphenomenon that is reached at a certain level of complexity. So we've got, you know, simple-celled organisms and amoeba and, you know, up up the, you know, the tree of life. Finally, we've got humans that have such complex brains that for for whatever reason, by virtue of that complexity, there's this extra physical effect that we call mind. But in reality, it's an illusion. Now, no one can really explain how exactly it's an illusion. Like, how could you have the illusion of being, um, you know, aware? It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to wrap your head around. So what they're basically saying is that a part of materialism is um, um, re- reductionism or, or determinism. Basically what that means is that everything that happens on top of matter, so that would be like conscious awareness um, from this point of view, as an epiphenomenon of physical functioning. Everything on top of that is totally determined by what goes on below it. So when we, are th- when we are thinking that we're making decisions or we're thinking that we're thinking, that's an illusion. We're just, we're just um, convincing ourselves somehow that it's actually taking place, but all we're observing is that's just the, the, the awareness that we have of what's happening in our bodies um, totally mm-hmm. outside of our control. So basically, neurological functions and chemical functions, etc. Yeah, and and mm-hmm. the, I think the important thing is the the fact that that we don't have any control. We're just we think we have control, but we're just observing all these things happen. Now, <clears throat> what that implies is kind of a complete determinism in the sense that um, our atoms are behaving in certain ways. They're combining. They're forming molecules. They're forming cells. Um, they're forming organs and, then, and a body and a brain. And then we have all these influences coming from outside um, and inside our bodies, acting on them. And then that creates physical changes that happen in our bodies and in our brains. That creates, so that creates these brain states. And then, so we're watching all this happening somehow mysteriously. And then when we think that we make a choice, like, uh, you know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to eat this or eat that or, you know, I'm going to go to bed at this time or not this time. That's, you know, just a narrative that we tell ourselves, but it's actually totally and completely determined by our atoms, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, so when I... Isn't, when isn't I, the fly in, in this particular bowl of soup uh, the, the idea that even they admit that we're observing this happening, therefore there is exactly. an observer? Because exactly. if, if, if we're just basically machines, essentially chemical, biological machines, mm-hmm. we should just continue to go about our daily lives, but there should never be any self-reflectiveness, never exactly. any, even the words, I am doing this, well, should never occur because that implies an awareness and an observation of these chemical and auto, automatic or automata uh, happening, you know, uh, exactly. no one should be observing that. There should be no one inside observing any of that happening. It should just be being carried out, and no one essentially, therefore, really talking to each other <laughs> either. Well, exactly. I, I think these guys um, they get around that by saying that yes, I'm doing this, and it is an illusion. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. And they leave it at that. Well, I'm mm-hmm. aware that I'm doing this, but that is part of the illusion, and mm-hmm. they're and they are happy with that. No, but that, that, yep. that, that's not a satisfactory explanation of it. No. It, it well, satisfies, and, uh, no, I can't satisfy it even from a scientific point of view, and we're t- talking here about, about science. I mean, science has to be rational. It has to make 
sense. And their, their, their theory, therefore, does not make sense. But then mm-hmm. the problem is that it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense to the person because you're a person, you're just a machine, and your question or your claim that it doesn't make sense is also an illusion. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit of a, 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 a what's the term, a, a tautology, you know? Yep, absolutely. Uh, the thing they accuse the creationists and the intelligent design <coughs> people of all the time, they engage in it also. But, yeah, um, and this, this comes some... back to what you were talking about earlier about common sense. Now, one of my favorite philosophers is David Ray Griffin, and probably a lot of our uh, listeners will recognize his name because he's been part of the, the 9-11 truth movement um, you know, for years now, and he's written some great books on it. But actually, you know, before he got into, into 9-11 and that kind of activism, he, he wrote a whole bunch of books on philosophy and theology. He's a, a theologian. Now, a non-traditional theologian, so we can get into that maybe. But um, he wrote a whole bunch of books on, on the mind-body problem. He wrote an entire book on parapsychology. Um, he's just written a whole bunch of great stuff that uh, you know I just I just find really fascinating. And the the thing he says about common sense is that uh, he thinks and he argues that common sense should really be the ultimate, like the starting point for any kind of philosophy or science. And uh, what that Harrison, means, are you there? Oh yeah, can you hear me? I I can hear you guys. Can you hear me now? Hello? And we're back. We just cut off again by Blog Talk Radio. As always, send your hate mail to the appropriate parties. Um, we're going to have to try and get uh, Harrison back on the line here. So we're going to do that right now. Hello? Harrison, you're back. We got Kyle. Okay. Carry right. on from where you were. Okay. So I was talking about common sense. And, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, um, but first we've got to figure out what common sense means. Now, um, so Griffin, he really likes lists and numbers, so he divides common sense into two kinds uh, hardcore common sense and softcore common sense. So he'd call softcore ki- common sense just any kind of. Um, you know, common sense belief that we might have about something, but that really um, could be true or false. Like, it's just pretty much determined by maybe our society or our education. So, you know, it was a common sense belief that, you know, the sun circled the earth, or, you know, it's a common sense belief that that uh, matter is totally physical and, you know, isn't made up of space, you know, between particles and things like that. So those are just, you know, beliefs that can be very strong and that we, you know, we feel are are true but aren't necessarily but what he thinks about as hardcore common sense are those ideas and um, those aspects of reality that we can't actively deny without affirming them in the very act of trying to deny them. Now, this gets back to you know the the funny thing that you observed about about these scientists or the, and these philosophers is that and we can take an example. If you say if you try to argue that there's no such thing as truth, then how are we to judge the truth of your statement? Do you really believe that what you're saying is true? Um, mm-hmm. If it is true, then you, you know it's it's you get into this logical paradox where if I'm arguing that there's no such thing as truth, I obviously believe that that's the truth, and therefore the, you know truth must exist in some sense. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a so he goes through you know there's various ones of these like if I 
um, if if I take the position of solipsism, like that I all I can know is that I exist, and I you know I can't be sure that any of you people exist, and you know I I even doubt that you exist. I and maybe even like you don't exist, but you know I'm talking to you, and I'm by by communicating, I'm presuming that I'm communicating you know with someone that's not myself. I'm presuming that you're real. And I can also deny that anything has value. Now, this is, um, Griffin calls this the moral crisis in moral theory, because currently there's no philosophical system or justification for the reality of any kind of universal values or morals. But when you get down to it, it's absurd, because if I argue that there's no such thing as value, kind of like with truth, then I am implicitly affirming the value of my own theory. I'm, a, I'm a, mm-hmm. affirming the value of a more truthful theory than the, than the alternatives. So these are the mm-hmm. kinds, of, kinds of things that we can't rationally deny because they're just... the value of there being no value. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you can't do it. Um, and mm-hmm. so, well, so, I mean, that, what, what amazes me is that when this is the logical end result of this kind of theorizing and philosophizing why it hasn't been thrown out long before now or immediately after it, it was uh, proposed and said, hang on, this is going nowhere. Why anybody gives this any credence or any, it's given any kind of a platform. I mean, it's just, it's totally anti-human, anti-natural, anti-freaking everything. You know what I mean? It's anti-existence almost. It's like you said, it's kind of, it's not just solipsistic, it's kind of nihilistic as well. You know, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, it, it t- totally denies. They go down that road of denying something that the entire uh, human population on the planet feel and know to be true. Let's say, collectively, they, they, if they start down that road of, of of denying something like that, then you know they're gonna just collapse in on themselves and disappear up their own backsides at some point. Yeah, I'm, I I always think of that that quote in uh, Douglas Adams is. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where God disproves His own existence in a puff of logic. That's basically yeah. what they're doing. They're 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 dispro- they're disproving their own existence in, in a way that's just completely absurd. And it, it's really frustrating to 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 read about and to think about and to see that the, the, this is the basis of our Western civilization. It's the basis of a lot of yeah. the science. Well, the official basis. Because you know you'll find a lot of scientists that disagree and that you know don't go that don't believe these things, but it's the it's the official narrative, so it's what gets filtered yeah. down, and it's the reason that there's a moral crisis. It's the reason that there's an ecological crisis, and mm-hmm. the only thing that I can think of why this has lasted so long and why it keeps la- and why it keeps going on is that you know this worldview that's suggested by it is just kind of really happens to match up with the. <laughs> some essential features of the psychopathic worldview. And when mm-hmm. you think about psychopaths being in power, it's like, you know, it's like a match made in heaven, kind of. Well, Absolutely. It, it, cer- it certainly serves the agenda, as we've mm-hmm. seen it played out over the past few hundred years, of the powers that be in terms of, um, you know, their major tool is, uh, or their major goal, let's say, is, is obviously greed and conquest and domination of, well, they live in the world, the world is their, their playground, so that's what they want to uh, dominate and control. And they do it by force, that involves uh, a 
abuses and killing of other human beings and has done throughout most of recorded history. So you want to kind of, uh, I suppose, get the population in line with that kind of an agenda. If you want to do that, then a great way to do it is to, to try to convince everybody through this kind of spread of a, of a cultural uh, philosophy or, or a personal humanistic kind of philosophy that, uh, that it's just all about me, I'm just a machine, nothing really matters. Uh, you know, people are much less likely then to to feel, or it's going to reduce people's natural kind of maybe empathy and sense of community that would stand against the kind of predations of the powers that be, you know? So it's very useful, yeah. a very useful and, philosophy for their agenda. Yeah, and just a couple examples to kind of bring that point home. Um, the philosopher Descartes, he um, he believed that only humans had any sense of awareness or experience or subjectivity. He thought that everything below humans, um, so that any kind of animal, didn't actually have any sense of, of being, uh, of experiencing. So even dogs, for example. So that made it really easy for him. He was a, like a champion of the practice of vivisection, you know, kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the dissecting of animals while they're still alive. Because for him, he thought that they were just like um, machines. You know, they weren't actually feeling machines, anything. Yeah. They, they were just, uh, you know, that was just the, the stimulus response that they were giving off, but they didn't, you know, it didn't hurt them. So, you know, mm. he was able to rationalize it to himself. And, you know, I think about how long uh, humans have been uh, performing surgeries on babies because they thought that babies hadn't developed this, you know, the ability to actually feel pain yet. It's like, yeah. that's the kind of lengths that this can go to. Harrison, you mentioned that this mechanistic vision of the world was a one of the foundations of our Western civilization. In your book, you show that it's not always been the case. The Stoics or the animists had a totally different vision of the world, and as history progressed, the church, in an ironic twist of faith, actually laid the foundations of the mechanism or the mechanistic view on which modern science grew. So could you explain better this uh, Evolution. Sure. Um, now, the the time. Well, before what we think of, you know, as a scientific revolution, and even during, you know, the beginning of this, the church was really in charge, and um, you know, the the church was you know, intertwined with politics, so they were basically one and the same. Um, you know, essentially you know, variations here and there, but the so there was a dominant worldview, and that was a, a supernaturalistic worldview that God created everything. Um, God, being this omnipotent being, omniscient, um, you know, had all the power, could interrupt the the universe at any time to create a miracle, and um, this was the kind of worldview that was going on. So there were, like like you said, Pierre, there were alternatives, though. There was this um, idea of the of the, what you know, what we can call the Hermetic philosophy or the Hermetic tradition or the esoteric, you know, these kind of alchemists and and assorted folk like that. And the way they saw the world was kind of different. They saw the world as what uh, what we might call being panpsychic. Um, the what that basically means is that all parts of the universe, the entire universe, has some um, some mental aspect some idea of mind, or some ability of mind. So basically, mind is expressed in the, the entire cosmos. And they had a, a, 
a few kind of ideas that followed from that, one of them being action at a distance, so being something like telepathy, the idea that one mind could influence another mind over distance. And that might mean that the, you know, the paranormal was real, that these things actually existed and happened, and there was a natural explanation for them because this just happened to be the, the, way, the way the universe was constructed. And what happened was the, the church couldn't allow these things for several reasons, and I'll just get into a couple of them, one of which was if action at a distance was possible and if telepathy was possible, if there was a natural explanation for paranormal events, that meant that there might be a natural explanation for the miracles in the Bible. And the miracles in the Bible were one of the foundational um, reasons to believe in the truthfulness of the Christian religion. It was like, um, so do we have the right to rule over you? Well, you know, God said we did. Just look at all the miracles that happened. But uh, if, if it was possible that, you know, that these things might happen just either randomly, spontaneously, or, you know, might happen to, you know, bad people. You know, bad people might have um, supernatural powers. That takes away this one justification for, you know, Christianity being the one truth. So there were, there were a bunch of these, um, these ideas that were, these ideas that conflicted between one or the other. And what, what basically happened, um, that, you know, Descartes was one of them, is that the, they ended up seeing the world as being strictly dualistic, that means there's two basic fundamental principles in the world, one ultimately being God, and then God created the universe and everything in it, um, like in this act of instant creation. Like, so he created the world out of nothing. So God existed in this supernatural sphere, and he gave humans the gift of minds. So this was their explanation for a mind. So the thing about the dualists and, the, and all of the early fathers of the founders of the scientific revolution, they were all Christian to, to you know, of one sort or another. And so they all saw mind as being a real thing. And it was an important part of, of reality. They accepted the existence of their own minds. They just placed it, you know, in this supernatural context where God was the ultimate source of mind and God gave them their minds. And somehow these two separate worlds, the mental world and the physical world, connected somehow. There are various explanations for how that happened. Descartes thought it was through the pineal gland, and, you know, that theory has been discarded since then. But we've had, so we've got these, this supernatural world. Now, the, the qualities that the world had was that the world was completely mechanistic, like you said, Pierre. So the world operated like a clock. You know, God created the, the physical laws, created all the matter in the universe, set it in motion and everything proceeded mechanistically. So any kind of causation, any kind of cause and effect was a strictly physical one. So one object bumped into another, and that was the only thing anything could really happen. And then, you know, um, he, and, and of course, you know, God created everything as it is. So, you know, God created humans, and then he just happened to give them minds. So really, this was... Um, uh, you know, I'd, kind of, I'd call it a silly worldview. It doesn't really make much sense. But um, it at least left open the room for mind. Now, what happened was, as scientists um, studied the world more and more, they found more and more you know, physical explanations for things, explanations for why this becomes this, why this happens after this happens. And they were able to kind of fill or close all the gaps 
that God had occupied for so long. So, you know, eventually we, we get up to Darwin, and finally, well, allegedly, we've got an explanation for what originally had been seen as, um, you know, God's work. So, oh, now, well, now we've got a physical, physical explanation for this, and the, the, the gaps became, became smaller and smaller to the point where scientists said, well, you know, we can pretty much dispense with God altogether. You know, we, we, the more we discover, the more we find that God isn't responsible for the things that we now know or, you know, are um, made possible by, you know, physical laws and things like that. So by rejecting, by eventually coming to reject God as an explanation for these things, scientists were left with that mechanical part of creation. The, you know, the one half between the mind and the body or between God and the world. We were just left with the world, and it was completely mechanistic. And another thing, um, one of the views of the church was that God was, of course, the supreme ruler, the supreme kind of like a king or a lord. And what do rulers do? They prescribe laws. And, you know, laws are universal, and they, um, you know, they're, it, you know, it's my way or the highway, basically. So the, the, the universe was seen as being this, you know, uh, mechanistic, ordered, clockwork universe. So when God was erased from the, equa the equation, all we ended up having left was that mechanical clockwork universe. And that's what's, uh, you know, in a nutshell, now it's a lot more detailed than that, but in a nutshell, that's why nowadays we've got this mechanical clockwork universe where mind has no place. Because it got erased, it got basically thrown out, it's the baby that got thrown out with the bathwater when we rejected God as an explanation for the universe. Yeah, and actually, in your book, you say the church hoisted on its own petard, but if you look at it from a more global perspective, a psychopathic ruler of mind, um, actually, the church and science, materialistic science, are two edges of the same world, in a sense that uh, they put us in a, some kind of double bind, because they give the illusion of opposition between creationism and big bang, uh, materialistic uh, big bangism. I don't know if you can say that in, in English. Uh, while excluding any other third option, and uh, yeah, led to this uh, to this world devoid of any uh, moral compass, of any value, of anything uh, that is related to uh, what makes us human. Uh, it's consciousness. Yeah, it, it puts us in a similar situation of that false dichotomy of you know Republican Democrat or you know yeah. um, you know right or left the, this kind of issue because we've got two extremes that are both equally um, yeah wrong <laughs> yeah wrong we they're they're both really equally feel... dogmatic what's that they're both equally dogmatic yeah. Yeah, and that's the term that Shelberg uses that I really like, um, because he comes at it and he says in his book, "Have you read the Science Delusion?" Yeah, by Shelberg, he just comes right out and says, "Here's the problem: since the 19th century, we've been dominated by a very specific philosophical materialism, which is actually a number of materialisms grouped together, but he he boils it down to that, and he says it's ruled by ten basic dogmas." Mm -hmm. um, that nature is purposeless, that everything is material, including humans, the mind's exclusively inside the head, and so on. But if there's, if there's one overarching belief that these uh, 
that uh, has come to dominate how science is used and seen today, it's basically that they think the whole the world has been discovered. The main principles are more or less worked out, and everything else is just detail. Yeah. The the arrogance for me that comes with that basic assumption is breathtaking. Yeah. Uh, one question. One question relating to to this point. Uh, if I understand correctly, Harrison, if our world was solely ruled by mechanistic laws, how could we explain this growing level of complexity, of order? We would be the slave of entropy. We would all be led to, to decay. So how can it make sense? Well, that's, uh, I think the main thing is that we can't, exp we can't explain any of these things with a mechanistic philosophy. Um, the philosopher uh, Alfred Whitehead, he had a uh, he said something interesting. I'm trying to find my quote here. Um, he wrote that. Okay, so I'll just read this two sentences from my book. Um, as Alfred Whitehead points out, in a world of just chance and necessity, so this is basic mechanism. Um, evolution is impossible in principle. So this is his quote. There can be merely change, purpose, purposeless and unprogressive. So when we think about, when we think through the implications of what materialism and mechanism really mean, um, there, there can't be any evolutionary principle. There can't be anything new in a cosmos that doesn't have the potential for something new. And what is the potential for something new? That's not a physical thing. We've only got what the what the strict laws of physics will allow to progress. And that will just be basically, you know, things changing. Things might come together in certain ways, but they're completely determined by the operations going on on this fundamental level. Now, of course, that goes totally against what we know about the world, where we experience uh, evolution and change and novelty, new things. And this is where we can probably get into the idea of information theory. Because the things that physics, um, you know, as a basic understanding of our basic um, material universe, what it can explain is, or account for, is higher forms of information. Now, I guess we can get into what exactly information is to try to kind of make all this make sense. Um, information probably... The, the two things that might come to mind automatically because they're the most immediately accessible uh, for information are, first of all, speech, like communication, um, language. When we communicate information to others, we use uh, language. We use words and sentences and paragraphs. We write books. We read books. We're having this conversation right now. now so, and the other that I'll get into might be DNA. So we, we often talk about the, the language of life, the language of DNA. So if we start with words, for example, well, what's information? Well, what's a word? Let's see. We've got an alphabet, 26 letters, um, that roughly match up with different sounds that we can make, different vocalizations that we can make with our voice box. So we've got these 26, um, well, I'll just say we've got these 26 sounds. It's more, but well, just for the sake of argument. We've got these 26 sounds or letters that we can make. We can, and then we can order them in different arrangements. Uh, we can place one after the other in all kinds of different um, arrangements. 
So uh, let's just take the example of um, like a nine-letter word. Uh, I've got the math here. So if we take a nine-letter word, there are approximately, let's see, um, five trillion or quadrillion possible combinations of nine-letter words. So just putting, you know, all different combinations of any letter in any situ in any space in that nine-letter word. Now, um, I did a little search and found that uh, there's a Harvard Google study that found that the English language has about one million words, and the ratio of um, the ratio of English words uh, or of nine-letter words in the English language about 14% of English words are nine-letter words. So if we've got a nine-letter word, like I think bodacious is nine letters. If we've got that word, that is one example of like five quadrillion um, different possibilities of arrangements of letters. And that's one possibility out of about 140,000 nine-letter words. So we've got all this amount of like gibberish and you know a, a smaller percentage of words that we identify as meaningful, and then we've got the one word that we choose. Now, if we look at this um, at this dynamic, this really can apply to all kinds of forms of information. Because what do we have here? We've got millions and millions and millions of different choices, different possible arrangements. But when we have one specific arrangement, that's what we can tie a meaning to. So the only way that we can create meaningful sentences, for example, is if we've got enough choice, enough possible um, possible sequences of letters that we can say, okay, this word's going to be that one, or that meaning, this word's going to be that, this word's going to be that. And by that, by doing that, we get a vocabulary that we can speak with. But we couldn't do that, for example, if we only could make one sound with our vocal cords. Otherwise, it would just be, eh, 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 eh. We wouldn't be able to differentiate any kind of meaning or any kind of um, different arrangements of that information to be able to convey a meaning. And so there's a big aspect about probability with information. So we might say that um, a really complex or really improbable sequence of something will have a high information content. It has a high information capacity because it, we can pack a lot of information of that into that because it's so specific. So, for example, if you were to roll, um, you know, if you if you were to roll a dice a hundred times and get six every time, that would be like remarkable. It probably wouldn't happen. And there are rules of probability that can say whether something like that is, you know, possible or not. And something like that Har is considered impossible. Yep. Yeah. Just one point in your book, you you mentioned this example of a uh, hundred coins and uh, you say that actually statistically it's the possibility of having a uh, hundred heads is the same as the, the probability as uh, any other result but what is very unlikely is to get hundred heads after announcing before head exactly. before exactly. before the event that you will get this result mm -hmm. yes that's and that's where we get into something about uh about specified information, because technically any any sequence of heads or tails that you're going to flip are going to be equally improbable. It's going to be one over two to the power of however many times you flip the coin. 
but the the uh, the improbable thing is that you're actually going to be able to guess the sequence exactly. So you know, I might I might roll heads, tails, tails, heads, 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 tails, heads, tails, heads, 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 etc. And if I can guess that before I actually flip it, that's you know that's something remarkable. But the 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 kind of direction I want to go with this is if we look at something like DNA. DNA is also a language. We've got these nucleotide bases that are arranged in a certain order that when translated and, and converted into proteins by, you know, um, the, the DNA will be read, a copy will be made, molecular machinery will read that copy, and then it will match these um, transfer RNAs that have an amino acid on them, and it will put them all together according to that sequence. Now, if we try to look at the probabilities involved, well, um, a pretty small protein has about 150 amino acids. And so we can take the number of amino acids there are, we can you know, do our math and figure out how many possible arrangements there are of 150 amino acid protein length. And the number is just huge, like... Um, let me see if I've got it here. Something like 1 to the power of 195. So that's a 1 followed by 195 zeros. And, you know, given all the time in the universe, all the computing power of the universe, you know, we can't match, we can't, um, you, we can't get that result by chance, for example. That's, well, that's just one example. But when we look at a protein, um, there's a, a scientist named Douglas Axe who did a study on this where he tried to figure out the the total number of those sequences that will actually produce a functional protein, so something that actually works in the cell. And that number is slightly smaller. It's uh, 10 to the power of 77. And, well, oh, I'm sorry, 10 to the power of 77 will have stable folds. So a protein is just a sequence of amino acids, but it has to be able to fold into a specific shape and keep that shape in order to have any function. And then only 10 to the power of 74 will have a function. So we've got these, it's, it's kind of like our nine-letter words. We've got all these possibilities for what the, um, the protein will be or what the word will be. Um, it could just be nonsense. Then we've got a smaller probability, of a, a, a smaller subset of this, of all these possibilities that will make a protein. And then we've got, you know, the one protein that we're looking for, basically. So what we've got, um, this is basically um, a form of information in the sense that information is when you choose how things will go one way or not any other. So we've got a whole bunch of options, and we're going to choose one option as opposed to all the others. Now, this gets back to kind of our evolutionary principle in nature. If there's no evolutionary principle, if there's no potential for change, um, no potential for one option or another, you know, things are just going to happen um, or, and repeat. You know, one, one object will move here, then it'll move over there, but there's not going to be any real growth or anything. Now, the interesting thing about information and DNA and all this stuff is that we can take the material world like we can take these nucleotides and we can put them together in arbitrary sequences seemingly and then somehow out of that we can get something like a protein or something like hundreds of proteins because a cell needs hundreds of proteins to work. So we've got this just 
immense, like it's immensely improbable to not only get one protein by chance in some chemical soup, but to get hundreds of proteins all at the same time, all working together, all working within a cell wall um, and, to do their job. It's just mathematical impossibility. And so um, when we look at how this all works, um, it's like we can't explain the arrangement of the DNA, for example, in terms of its physics, because the organization that's going on is something on top of physics. It's something that isn't determined by physics, because physics, physics and chemistry just acting on their own, they might put certain amino acids together in certain um, ratios. So this, this amino acid might bond naturally with this amino acid, you know, this many times. Uh, these ones won't bond, really. So all we'd have are these amino acids basically kind of randomly coming together and making these random sequences um, that wouldn't end up being an actual protein because there's no law in nature, there's no law in physics that says, okay, I'm going to put this sequence of DNA, you know, this, 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 and it's going to be a protein. It ha- doesn't happen that way. Chance and necessity, the neither can explain that. So, so yeah, yeah. usually that DNA can form by chance. So obviously there's another factor. There's some kind of, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say, some kind of intent, intent intelligence, a design? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how does it work? What is the driving factor? Well, this gets into you know another controversial issue because um, the things that I'm that I'm saying right now about probability and DNA and stuff, the only people that say this are the the, the supporters of intelligent design. Now, so that gets into the whole creationism angle because um, the the popular view of this of intelligent of intelligent design is that all the people that support it are creationists so they're hardcore christians and they're just trying to find a way to make god responsible for evolution kind of unfair assessment um, not all people that support intelligent design are christians or even religious uh, there's nick bryant for example who has his theory of rational design in his book life uh, origin of life the fifth options and his point, and also the, it's the point that the intelligent design supporters make, is that we only have one explanation for information, for specified complex information, <clears throat> like language, which DNA is, and that's intelligence. We, you need intelligence in order to, um, to take that highly improbable sequence and to just make it probable. Like we do that all the time when we're when we're when we're speaking, we're forming highly improbable sequences of vocalizations tied with meaning that we're informing with intent, and we do that every time we speak, every time we write an email. It's this event that occurs in the cosmos that shouldn't happen, but we're able to do it because of intelligence. So what the people, what the intelligent designers guy, guys say, is that um, you know there must be an intelligence behind. DNA, for example, and not only DNA, because DNA isn't the only information in the cell. Um, the cell structure itself is highly specific, and the cell structure needs to be in a certain way. It determines a lot about how an organism will develop from that first cell, but there's no DNA to, um, to transfer that cell organization. The cell structure gets 
uh, inherited directly from cell to cell. So where did the first cell structure come from? Where did that first DNA come from? Um, I, you know, I think there's got to be some type of intelligence that somehow makes, makes that specific arrangement that can't have come about by just you know, molecules bumping into each other because it's just so complex, so specified. What is the uh, what is what are the Darwinists um what is their explanation for this? It's that it is possible by a random oh. chance. <clears throat> well then we can well, actually if we take someone like Richard Dawkins, um mm-hmm. you know, Dawkins is probably as hardcore a, a materialist and as an atheist as you can get. And there's a, a kind of revealing interview uh, that was done with him in a documentary on intelligent design called, I think it's called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And so the interviewer kind of presses him into a corner about the origin of life, so basically the first DNA, the first single-celled organism. Where did that come from? And Dawkins had to admit, well, you know, we don't have any idea at the moment. No one knows. Hmm. So there are all kinds of theories, of course, and these, like, there's the RNA world theory. So, because one of the problems is that um, DNA is necessary in order to make proteins, but proteins are necessary in order to, you know, to work with the DNA. So we've got a chicken and egg problem. You, you can't. If proteins came first, there couldn't have been any DNA. They needed DNA. So, and the same. If there's just DNA, there's no proteins to um, to read that DNA or to self-replicate. So what they've come up with is this RNA theory that RNA came first because there are certain enzymes, uh, ribozymes, that can, uh, well, basically, RNA can act in a similar way as DNA and proteins. Mm. So they theorize that there must have been, um, it must have started as RNA, and then um, somehow, now this is where the mystery is, somehow um, uh, a self-replicating RNA sequence evolved and then from there, you know, it evolved into other structures and, and DNA, et cetera, et cetera. But kind of like okay. the the mind, the psychological theories of uh, the nature of mind, like behaviorism and computational theory and identi- identity theory, like they're all just less unsuccessful theories in the last. It's the same thing when we look at origin of life theories, because all they do is push back the search for the first information, because you need a whole lot of information in order to have a self-replicating organism or you know, sequence of RNA even. That's a, that's a huge informational input that has to come from somewhere. You can't get that by chance. So it's another one of these examples where because, because there's no intelligence allowed, because that might, in the, I think, in the scientist's mind, um, you know, imply that God is real and we can't have God being real, then you mm. know, that must be impossible so therefore, we've got to just really try to figure out a way that it might be possible without um, any intelligence. But you can't. Like none of these theories yeah. make sense. They all presuppose existing information. Okay, well that's the origin of of things. But in terms of how things, let's say we leave that as an open question. No one has the answer to where yeah. it all began. But in terms of the uh, theory of evolution, and that things could have, in the vastness and the, and the in the, in the amount of of matter in the universe mm-hmm. that it could have over a long period of time evolved to produce, for example, the planet and everything on it. 
that, yeah. that they obviously claim that this is possible through essentially random chance. Uh, yeah. The problem is there's no way there's no way to prove or disprove that. Obviously, nobody's seen evolution happening. They see it mm-hmm. having happened, and right. but uh, but uh, they they also can't disprove that there's some kind of a uh, intelligent design behind it. But it can't be disproven that it didn't happen by random chance either. Yeah, and this is this is something that Thomas Nagel wrote about in his book Mind and Cosmos which was another controversial book, because Thomas Nagel is a pretty mainstream philosopher, American philosopher. And, but one of the things he said about this is that um, he thinks that the world makes sense. And when you have something that just appears as this inexplicable mystery, to just write it off as being like a chance event, you know, even if we can't prove it one way or another, um, it's kind of like just giving up, um, looking for an explanation. So when when we have these these people saying that oh it must have it, it happened it, you know it probably just or it might have just been chance it might have just been you know we can't prove it either way it's kind of like just passing off the buck like well we we really don't really want to we really won't even try to explain it so mm-hmm. it's like no explanation <clears throat> versus you know I don't know it's just it just doesn't make sense to me to to, to just kind of bracket it off and not think about it when it seems to be really important. Mm-hmm. I think it, what, it, what it tries to, behind it all, what the materialist viewpoint uh, tries to impose on people, and it is being imposed on people against kind of human intuition and stuff, it's being imposed by people like Dawkins, etc., uh, um, and, and science, modern science, is that human beings have no input, essentially, in their own evolution. We're not a part of evolution, per se. We don't have any active role in it. We're simply, uh, what you could call, depending on your perspective, you could say you're a victim. We're victims yeah. of, of evolution. It's just happening and we have no role in it. And it, it's, it essentially tries to convince people that, that they're not participants in their own kind of you know, future, essentially, or yeah. the future of their species, or their own future, or, and they don't really have much effect on the broader evolution of, of the human race and, you know, human destiny, let's say. And that's, yeah. a very, uh, that's a very very pernicious thing to do. But they say, well, we're just trying to be realistic and we're not, we don't want... The impression I get of people like Dawkins is that they're traumatized. I think they need to be psychoanalyzed, you know? Yeah. That, that would shut them up. I would say, Dawkins, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on your theories. I'm going to psychoanalyze you. And, you know, I think maybe when he was a child or something, they've either either got a messianic kind of complex where they want to be in control of it all, kind of of conversely in a certain sense, or paradoxically, where they reject God and all this kind of stuff, they themselves want to have the whole banana, if you know what I mean, the the complete answer to everything so that, that they know. And it's almost like a godlike situation, you know, from a materialist point of view. It's the yeah. materialistic god, you know, that everything is locked down. We know how it all happened, and there is nothing else, and we're in control. And for me, that's like, that's, there's lots of uh, potential there for a psychoanalyst to look at that and say, listen, yeah. tell me about your mother, you know. <laughs> when you were a child, were you, did you have some traumatic experience where some kind of random uh, or some kind of uh, event, you know, caused you to want to have everything locked down in your life, for there to be no outside forces other than what you yourself uh, are able to see and observe, and you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. There's something wrong with those people. Yeah, and it's, it's a very answer. religious mindset. It is when you think about it, yeah. yeah. 
where you know you've got to have definite answers for everything, and anything that goes against those ideas, you know, you've got to stamp them out. You can't even let them enter your mind because to doubt would be you know to let the devil in. Yeah, mm. and the other thing that they that they totally ignore is the totally the, the completely reasonable and logical idea that human beings as they are at this point in time as evolution let's say has conspired to to to, to create them uh, that they are not capable or they do not have the ability to perceive the true nature or all of reality in which they exist, right? The, how it actually works and what there is to observe, right? I mean, I think even they would admit that, obviously, human beings, even with their prostheses and their scientific instruments, can't necessarily observe everything that, that there is. So any theory, therefore, that they would come up with cannot be the be-all and end-all, and they would, therefore, by definition, have to allow for things that are beyond the scope of uh, human observation or understanding or beyond the scope of human awareness. For example, if you took a bunch of monkeys uh, in the jungle without opposable thumbs uh, and, they, and get, let them come up with a scientific theory about what is or is not possible, they would come up with a very interesting you know, theory about what is possible based on their particular current state of, of evolution and what they're able to do physio- physiologically and intellectually. But it would be ridiculous from our point of view to see a bunch of monkeys do that and, and have it. Yeah, that's, that's the complete be-all and end-all. Yeah, we would laugh at them. So why do, why do these people not assume the same for themselves and that even within the theory of evolution, that evolution may continue to push human understanding further to the point where we would be able to under, understand these things. And this, this brings up the other idea of that maybe people like Dawkins are arguing for their own limitations in the sense that if Dawkins says you know, I'm just a machine. Uh, if he says we're just machines developed by random evolution and we have, yeah. there is no intelligence, etc., I would say, Mr. Dawkins, uh, I agree that what you say is true for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you must allow for the fact that not all human beings are created equal and you may see things in that way. And in fact, it's, it's, you know, it's almost empirically true in a certain sense that what you're saying is true for you if I say something different and I uh, claim that there is there's more to me than you say there is to you, well, then you're going to have to accept that and live with the possibility that you are essentially defective in some way or maybe not quite as evolved as me uh, from an evolutionary point of view. And you don't have what I have, therefore, go ahead. But, you know, be careful about projecting sure. your limitations onto the entire human race. Yeah. Because the thing that I'm talking about, you can't measure. You said it doesn't exist, but, you know. I have a question, Harrison. Uh, You mentioned uh, Brian Sheeter, who demonstrated in his book uh, that obviously life on Earth and human beings in particular are the result of uh, intelligent design. But where Sheeter falls short is about uh, who designed the designer. And in your book, there are some uh, possible explanations for how all, do, all this stuff gets created, so could you expand this point? Okay. Um, I'll try. Cause that, the, way I, the way I've structured the book and the way I kind of approached it was kind of really building on one thing to the other. So by the time I get yeah. to 
to, to how it gets, you know, a, a possible explanation, you know, I might miss a few steps, but I'll try. So when we've got this idea of an intelligence and of, of an intelligent designer, you know, we, we uh, you know, naturally ask, well, what's the nature of this intelligence that's doing the designing? So if it was some kind of, um, you know, extraterrestrial or some alien intelligence that has a biology, for example, then sure, they might have created us in test tubes and, you know, created the first organisms or the first single cellular organisms and then kind of seeded them on a planet and then just let things take their course. That, of course, brings up the question, well, who, you know, how did the how did the, the beings that designed us get their design? What, you know, what we can't just put the question back, um, you know, in this like infinite regress. So where where did that intelligence come from? But um, there are other options, um, and one of them is to get back to this animistic idea of panpsychism, that there's mind in the entire cosmos. Mind is a general property of the cosmos. And if we look at it from this perspective, we might have a way out or, you know, an explanation for where this comes from. And one of the ideas I tried to develop, uh, first of all, to kind of tie it back into the conversation with the paranormal and, you know, with the dif disappearance of the Malaysian flight, you know, if we can do that, is is this idea of, okay, well, what is the nature of the paranormal? Um, well, we've got um, in, in parapsychology that roughly breaks down into, into two types of phenomena, um, ESP, or extrasensory perception, and psychokinesis, or PK. And that's basically receiving information in our minds that isn't mediated through our physical senses. So we might receive in, or we might get information about um, events taking place elsewhere or some other time, maybe in the past. And that's been um, written about a lot in the history and, and the research into remote viewing. Also telepathy, so basically reading minds. And the the research into that one of the the com one of the common experiments done these days is called the Ganfeld experiment, where a person will sit down in a comfy chair and they'll put halved ping pong balls over their eyes with a a red light to give a, a uniform <clears throat> um, light stimuli to the eyes, and then they'll put on some relaxing music and basically give. Four, um, give four pictures to a person in another room. One of the, they'll pick one of the pictures, and they'll just you know think about that picture and try to send that one to the guy sitting in the room with the sensory deprivation stuff on. And then afterwards, they'll show him the four cards and say you know which one was the one you were looking at. And if we just go by chance, um, it should it should equal out to about 25% success. Um, over you know a long series of doing these tests, and Dean Radin, who's one of the big um, writers and researchers in parapsychology these days, he's done <clears throat> big meta-analyses of all the tests that have done this. So you know he's got like thousands and thousands of trials that uh, that contribute, and the average success rate is 32%. And that is even though it's you know it doesn't look like necessarily a big response. It's actually really big statistically. We've basically gone from getting one out of four to to getting one out of three correct. So, uh, and then there's psycho. So, so there's some evidence for something like uh, ESP for um, you know getting information that hasn't come through our physical senses. And then same with uh, psychokinesis, where basically using the power of our minds to affect a physical system or another mind. Um, 
And one of the tests that they do with that is random number generators. So you've got a random number generator that will generate zeros and ones, and as it you know as it progresses, it'll ev- it will pretty much you know equal out to 50%. But when you concentrate on it, they do these set studies and they hook these people up and they um, concentrate on trying to get more zeros or ones, and they'll actually get a significant uh, like deviation from 50%. I think it's uh, 51% is the is the effect, and again, it looks like a small a small effect, but it's a real effect. Um, it's um, like the the probabilities of chance for these results are just astronomical. So there seems to be some um, laboratory evidence for ESP and PK, and of course, the laborat- the only reason people started doing laboratory experiments is because people had ordinary experiences in their lives that seemed to be demonstrations of these sorts of things. Um, so that you know, scientists decided to test to see if these things were actually true. Now, the things about the thing about the things in real life is that they're often a lot more um, dramatic. So uh, well, there's a whole a whole history of psychical research that you can get into if if you want to do that. Well, but, right there, Harrison. Sorry to interrupt. Right there, yeah. there's the issue or an issue. Okay. Who says because it had to be replicated in a lab, mm-hmm. results drawn up? discussed among the experts that that then qualifies to make it true when tens of thousands of ordinary people have long since already established yeah. that something like that is true. Yeah. That's a, that's that's a good point. Me. No end about science as, yeah. as is taught and practices. Yeah. yeah and that's, well, yeah. go ahead. Okay. Well, two points. Just one really quickly on what Neil just brought up. That's one of the points that um, there's a philosopher named Stephen Browdy who, who researches and writes about um, parapsychology. And that's exactly his point, is that he thinks that all this research is kind of useless. It's like, because we're, you know, we're spending all this money and doing all these experiments to prove you know, these tiny effects that, A, aren't very interesting, and, you know, B, <laughs> we experience all them all the time. Like we've, the, that's the very reason we do it is that we know that these things happen, or at least we have the experience of them. Like, I think that, or I, I think he might argue that we've done enough experiments with, uh, you know, in the labs. Let's try to find out the really, ex, the really exciting stuff and the, the really interesting stuff. But that's a, you know, that's a whole other topic. The reason I was, I'm, I'm bringing this parapsychology stuff up is that it comes back to the mind-body problem, where how do we view the mind? Do we view it as identical with the brain? Do we view it as an epiphenomenon of the brain? Um, These really fall short as being satisfactory answers, primarily because it doesn't give any room for um, a causal influence of the mind. The mind can do nothing. Mm -hmm. In essence, the mind can't create information because all information, if if information even exists, must be created from below. It must be strictly, you know, a result of our atoms. Mm-hmm. So, so this gives. Um, so when we don't, when we view the mind as somehow distinct from the brain, it allows it to interact. So just um, that's just a philosophical mm-hmm. distinction that it, it has to be distinct, and if if it's going to be able to interact. So somehow, this is what David Ray Griffin concludes: is that somehow our minds must be distinct from our bodies or from our brains. And there's probably some kind of um, process going on um, where the mind is able to influence the brain, the informa- and th- basically there's an information transfer between the brain and the mind. And uh, physicist Henry Stapp has, ca- has been trying to develop a, a kind of model for this on how this might work, and the way he sees it, he sees the brain as kind of a quantum state. Um, it's got this 
probability cloud of possible brain states. And with a, you know, a conscious um, choice or observation, we can basically say, okay, we're going to do this brain state, choose this one. So we choose this brain state and we somehow um, actualize it in our brains. And then we can move you know, our arms or do whatever, or we can somehow control um, what's going on, basically, and not be just machines. So he's looking for a way to, to understand this, you know, using quantum dynamics in the brain and, and stuff that really are kind of over my head because I'm not a scientist. But looking at it from the philosophical perspective, um, David Ray Griffin, based, you know, basing his, his thinking on the work of Whitehead, came to the conclusion that there must be a fundamentally non-sensory mode of perception. So at the very mm-hmm. basic level, throughout all the cosmos, so not just mammals or humans, um, everything has a sense uh, of, <clears throat> of mind, some kind of even really primitive mentality. And mm-hmm. the way that happens is what he calls um, non-sensory perception. It's an awareness of um, one's past, um, the, the causal influences acting on you, so basically the information transfers that are, that are coming from all the objects in your sphere of influence. Now, for a human, that would be you know, everything acting on our bodies, the light, the temperature, the pressure, sights, sounds, smells, all the things happening in our body, all this information that's going through our senses and going into our brains, it's an all-in information transfer. Now, the point he makes is that if the brain is not the same thing as the mind, which it seems it must be, or it seems it must be something different from the mind, then uh, awareness or the fundamental nature of perception can't be sensory because we've got sensory neurons going from you know our skin through our body to our brains. Well, where are the sensory neurons between our brains and our minds, right? It just doesn't make sense to think mm-hmm. like that. So there's got to be some kind of non-sensory perception going on that our mind is able to somehow receive information from our physical brain and our physical brain is somehow able to receive information from our, you know, presumably non-physical minds. Mm-hmm. And so do we have any evidence of that? Well, if we look at ESP and PK, I think we do. We've got ESP being information coming from external sources, you know, into our minds. And PK, we've got our minds somehow influencing physical probabilistic systems. So we've got this non-physical connection, the ability to, to A, um, you know, receive information, or B, input information, or change the, the, the probabilities of physical events. So when we get to the idea of evolution, what I think happens is that it's basically something like this going on at like a, almost like a cosmic perspective. So how, what, first of all, what's the only known cause for creation of information? Well, it's intelligence. Now, based on like parapsychology and what we, what we can gain from that, what's the only known or, you know, relatively known, if we could say that, method for influencing a, a, a random, you know, information substrate you like um, in in such a way like in a cell to be able to organize DNA in a certain way. Well, I think that might be psychokinesis. Now, it's like so. Now this would get into you know whole other areas about you know what's the nature of the the mind doing the psychokinesis on 
um, on these physical systems to, to create, you know, I, maybe genetic mutations, maybe the first DNA, maybe organizing cell structures. You know, I don't know. So mm-hmm. I'm just throwing that out there. But I'm not sure if that's where you wanted me to go with, with your question, Pierre. Well, it's a, it's a toughie. He basically asked you the ultimate question, what's behind <laughs> it all? Yeah, yeah, and it seems the rules of the game are that we cannot know no, but at there's this a lot, given level of reality. But there's a lot, a to, lot to discover before that. I mean, there's no yeah. point in trying to go to the the big question or like you know who created God or you know that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, obviously, there's we're up against a bunch of materialists who are trying to lock everything down, and and for me, it's 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 the height of arrogance because. Um, and self-centeredness, you know, when these people, surely people like Richard Dawkins, etc., and the scientists look at, they have evidence for, from all around the world, from, from millions of people, and and the evidence that you've uh, you've just talked about, that there is something more uh, than this materialistic view of things, and you know, mind in some way does influence, you know, reality and is separate from the brain, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so they see this evidence, but because they cannot measure it, because it's something essentially, it's it's something beckoning the human species to, you know, uh, a greater level of understanding, or even it's maybe it's evolution beckoning beckoning the human species, and they see that and they discount it because of, at this level of our evolution, let's say, we're not in a position to measure it and understand it. It doesn't fit with our set of laws, so they dismiss it. I mean, that's completely obtuse. That's incredibly obtuse for anybody who claims to be a scientist to, 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 to take that approach to tentative evidence that says, okay, there's something here that science cannot explain and does not understand. Therefore, the conclusion should be that science does not know enough. But mm-hmm. they and don't do that. They say devote more resources into looking into it. Exactly, but they don't. They say, we know everything there is. Therefore, anything that doesn't fit with what we know today does not exist. I mean, Really? That's meant to be logical and rational. Well, you know what? Evolution has done a pretty crappy job of people like Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's, it's even worse than that. You see, on the one hand, they ridicule anything suggesting that there's more than just purely materialistic laws, rules governing the known physical world and universe. At the same time, we know that they take very seriously these other taboo subjects that are ridiculed publicly, but we know they do research on them in secret. Yeah, exactly. And it comes out in the development of super high-tech weaponry Mm -hmm. and disappearing planes. GMO food. I mean, that's technically that's voodoo science based on their own principles, but they are... I don't know if it's a hypocrisy or if it's something more than that. Dawkins, for example, says... Dawkins a puppet. There's no free will. The logical conclusion of what he's saying is there's no free will. There's no such thing as consciousness in itself. Well, that, that, I'm, I agree with him. I submit, therefore, that the reason why there's absolutely no logic to that worldview is because they are unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, Dawkins is down on you know, creationists, right? And these are the fundy types. But he's also down on anybody who believes in religion. And tell you what, based on evolution, people who who believe in mainstream Christianity, 
even though it's you know extremely distorted and you know at least they have an awareness of there being something more than themselves something higher than themselves which is borne out by the evidence all around us in the world and on the planet in terms of everything that's been created um, those people in my book are above are higher on the evolutionary scale than people like Richard Dawkins who want to remain at the level he's basically arguing for everybody being machine you know mm-hmm. with no kind of uh, you know experiential awareness or no um, nothing outside of this you know materialistic brain and mm-hmm. I mean he, he with no free will well he's the one who came up exactly he's the one who came up and I, I think in Dawkins anybody who argues with Dawkins he doesn't argue with people anymore because he's kind of scared to. He says, no, you know, it's pointless. We shouldn't give him a platform and stuff. But anybody who argues with Dawkins should uh, turn his arguments against himself like I did kind of earlier on. And he, he also is the one who wrote that book, The Blind Watchmaker, right? And this is from, um, it was again his materialistic argument and he was using the term the blind watchmaker comes from the, uh, the watchmaker analogy that was famous or something in the 18th century by some English theologian who basically was saying that uh, just as a watch is too complicated and too functional to have sprung into existence merely by accident, so too must all living things with a far greater complexity be purpose, purposefully designed. So, uh, so, so Dawkins took this idea of the watchmaker analogy for this idea of intelligent design and, and he coined the phrase the blind watchmaker uh, where he says that... Um, natural selection is sufficient to explain the apparent functionality and non-random complexity of the biological world and can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, albeit as an automatic, non-intelligent, blind watchmaker. Mm. Right? So that's his, his argument, that it's, he yeah. turns it around and says that the, if there is a watchmaker, it's blind, it's random, it's got, it's got no actual intelligence. But again, Dawkins is speaking from his own arguably he, yeah. would, he would agree from his own perception from his own person and what he sees and i would say you can have it richard it's all yours you're the blind one you're not if you want to argue with the rest of humanity that what you are well, using your argument you are arguing that you have no part in your personal evolution mm-hmm. or the part that you play as a human being uh, in terms of he claims evolution is well everybody would claim that Everybody would agree that evolution is happening through the human species as, as one element on this planet, right? The evolution is progressing. Well, if some people claim that they are taking an active role in that and are able to direct that perhaps, and that there's a possibility of directing our own evolution through our own participation in it, that's fine. If Richard wants to argue that he's blind, that he's just a mere tool of evolution and has no participation in his own little part of pushing evolution forward, fine, go ahead. And uh, is pushing evolution backwards? Uh, to answer your question, Harrison, um, yeah, you, what you said about who designed the designer is what I had in mind. And somehow, as you point out in your book, evidence suggests the existence of a immanent uh, mind, mm-hmm. a cosmic mind, made of yeah. information intelligence that permeates every single entity that constitutes this cosmos and Ironically, it is the world vision that was held for centuries by our ancestors and uh, those people that uh, Joe described very well, like Dawkins, made us made orphans of uh, one of the most important pieces of knowledge to understand our universe. Yes. 
Yeah, um, I, I could say a few things about that idea. Um, the so I talked earlier about the church and the the kind of battle with uh, the animists. The church saw God as being supernatural, so being totally separate. And so here we've got this false dichotomy again that our options are only a supernatural God or no God, no mind, no intelligence in the universe. You know, total, total materialist atheism. But there's a third option, and the third option, you know, which I like, is that um, there's no supernatural God, but there's but materialism materialism isn't true either. We can have a third option that the intelligence of the cosmos basically the soul of the world as it was as it has been called is imminent in creation that means it's present throughout all of creation um there's a term for it in philosophy called panentheism and that basically means that whatever we call god god is in the world and we are in god and the way i see god in that equation is as this cosmic mind as um a kind of the source of all information, the source of all possibilities. Because possibilities aren't material things. Possibilities are, are virtual. They're you know, they're possibilities. They don't exist in a physical realm. We actualize them. Um possibilities get actualized all the time. That's what we do whenever we make a choice. But um philosophy has to answer, you know, several questions. One of which is where are these non physical things? Where are possibilities? Where where do we get the the standards of truth or the standards of logic or mathematics? Where do numbers exist? Because we all have access to mathematical truths, and mathematical truths are universal in the sense that if a, if a mathematician comes up with a proof, it's not just true for him. Um, it'll be true for any mathematician, and any mathematician will be able to, to find problems in that theorem or that proof. And um, the, I think the conclusion that we can gain from this is that truth is universal. And so truth will apply to me, it'll apply to you, whether we want it to or not. But where do we get the standard for truth? Like, why is it even a standard? Um, like, you know, conceivably we could have a world where, A, like, truth doesn't matter. So we could have, you know, um, when we have a criminal trial, for example, we could have, you know, it doesn't really matter if we get the right guy or not, because, you know, the truth doesn't matter. It's just, you know, we're, we're just going to have a trial for the, for the sake of it. But for some reason, truth matters, and there are certain standards of truth. So we have, you know, consistency with the facts. We have non-contradiction. Why do we rely on non-contradiction? Why should that be such an important thing? Well, it is, you know, for some reason. But these are, these are non-physical standards. These are mental standards that, that operate our thinking and the way that we put thoughts together. And so that applies to mathematics, applies to logic, but it also applies to values. So, you know, we value truth. Truth isn't just the opposite of a lie. You know, it's, it's just not just one or two options. Somehow it's more important to us. I mean, when there's a trial going on, you know, that gets big news head coverage, we want to know the truth. It's like... If we know that people are lying to us, it you know it causes us to feel like this indignation. Why are they lying to us? We want to know the truth. We want the like you know the the guilty party to get punished. We don't want an innocent to be punished. We want the truth. Also, like so, the fact that truth is universal. So, 
um, if something's true on Earth, it's true. It's true, you know, millions of miles away in outer space. It doesn't matter where you are that it's truth. That uh, it doesn't matter where you are that something is true. And then we can go even bigger and look at the physical laws of the universe. Why do the physical laws of the universe, so-called, apply always and everywhere? So why does gravity? Why isn't gravity different? You know, in a different solar system or somewhere else? Why are why are the values of all the physical constants what they are and not something else? Now Sheldrake gets into some of these ideas in the book you mentioned, Neil, uh, Science Set Free or the Science Delusion, uh, depending on if you're in the UK or Canada, different or North America, different titles. But basically, the big question is what holds all this universe together? What provides the context for these a universal truths or b these universal um, informational uh, statements or rules that guide or direct or control, you know, the operating of the universe itself. Um, why, why is this a universe, you know, uni, one? What unifies the universe? What makes it one context where something that's true in one place is true everywhere, where, you know, gravity works here, gravity works everywhere else? Why is it unified? And and where do these non-physical things like values and truths and you know logic and all logical norms and all these things and possibilities where do they exist? Well, the conclusion that the Stoics came to, or a lot, you know, many of these um, panpsychic philosophies, and this was, um, you know, so-called primitive animism, so the beliefs of you know all our ancestors, and then various philosophical schools. What was their conclusion? Well, their conclusion was that the world had a universal mind and that the, there was a, um, a macrocosmic, microcosmic dynamic going on as above, so below. So if we were to look at ourselves and find kind of like the universal principles at work in ourselves, because really philosophy should start with us. We're the ones experiencing things. That's where that's why I think Descartes was right to say that I think therefore I am. Basically, we have to start with our own experience because all the facts that we see, all the facts that we try to explain are our experiences, um, you know, that are coming into our own minds. So let's look at ourselves. You know, presumably we've got a mind and we've got a body. Our mind kind of unifies all this activity going on in our body, all the processes going on. We we act as a unified whole. We're a system. We're a system of systems where we've got all these systems going, operating inside our bodies. But at the same time, we've got this mind that somehow unifies things. If, if, uh, if atoms were somehow aware, or molecules, or cells, then if we put all that together, we just have, like, what, 10 trillion cells, I think, we have in our body? 10 trillion um, cells that experience something. But... That's not what we've got. We've got one consciousness that is somehow mysteriously able to unify, you know, all this information. We've got all this sensor, sensory information coming to us. Um, you know, I can't remember the number of bits that some scientists have concluded or calculated. All the information coming to to our minds. We don't have access to all of it at the same time, but it's unified. You know, we we can hear and see at the same time. Um, we can, you know, see the context of something that we're reading. We can read ahead or behind. We can see foreground and background. We can put it all together in this um, this whole that makes sense. 
Now, if we can extrapolate that to the universe, we've got a, a, uni a material universe, um, this body of matter. And for the Stoics, you know, God was imminent in nature. So God was this divine principle, this intelligence, this information that creates and maintains the universe. And that is the source of, you know, of values and, and truth and all that. So, you know, yeah. in a sense... I guess and, you know, I kind of agree well, with him. I, I would suggest that they did not come to this realization by philosophizing for the sake of it. I think that the reason we have established the universal truth that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is because at some point somebody decided to test the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 5 and build a machine based on that false mathematical equation realized the machine didn't work, the whole tribe starved, and everybody yeah. learned by very hard experience mm -hmm. what was true and what was not. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, experience is central. Yeah, I, okay. I agree that uh, it seems to be that there, is, there are universal truths or a universal truth, uh, and, but there is a lot of scope, it seems, uh, within the human experience to, uh, for people to have their own subjective truths. And those subjective truths can be pursued and lived out in each individual's human experience. But what people find, and this is ultimately the, I suppose the, the origin of human suffering, is, is that when those truths that people believe that they adopt for themselves or choose to, those, those personal subjective truths, they clash with this uh, broader objective truth. And that happens, you probably know this quite a lot, uh, yeah. And most ordinary people don't have uh, the power to kind of like, you know, impose their uh, their own personal subjective truth on a lot of other people, you know. And that again, when that does happen, when people do have that power, we find a lot of suffering, you know. Um, so it seems to me that the, the in terms of the true evolution of the human species, it's about aligning our own understanding with this broader objective truth. And it's a process of exploration, obviously, and learning and growing. And uh, it's completely uh, anti-evolution and anti-human, anti essentially, anti-human nature for, uh, to, to adopt this materialistic where we are now is all there is type of thing. And what we are is pretty much just machines and have no, essentially no, no, no influence over our own evolution or have no, no part to play. I mean, it's, it's, when you put it in those terms, uh, that that is what people like Richard Dawkins, etc., are, are promoting. And you look at the amount of airtime they've been given. And this guy, Dawkins, has been given uh, uh, for several years running, I think, was cited as the world's uh, kind of best mind or something like that in some magazine, you know. And I mean, you look at what he's proposing, it's... It goes against everything that make everybody else human. So what is he and his ilk? What are they? I mean, who are they? I mean, they're not spokesmen for the rest of the human uh, population, certainly based on what the rest of the human population experience. But they're trying to shove it down people's throats. It's terrible. And then Richard, you can tell I don't like oh, Richard Dawkins, can't you? <laughs> but then Rupert Sheldrake gets you know banned from TED Talk. I know. And this is a very important point. People need to look at this. Look at what these two... Use these two people as examples, Richard Dawkins and Rupert Sheldrake, and look at how they have been received and wonder why. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just bizarre, to be honest. You know. Yeah, I feel the same the, way. Um, something that's interesting about information theory 
as I understand it. So in the materialist worldview, everything is built from the bottom up. Yeah. DNA, single cells, amoeba, small creatures, all the way up to humans, and then consciousness is a byproduct or an epiphenomenon, as, as you described it, of just neurons firing in our brain. Yeah. Just the end result of a series of chances. But information theory turns that completely on its head. Would that be a fair way to, to say it? That actually everything is informed from the outside and sort of top down, top in quote. Yeah, I think so. Um, absolutely, yeah. Um, because with information, um, when you're informing something, you're imposing like a top down structure on it that isn't reducible to the parts. So, like a systems, uh, when you're looking at things in terms of systems, um, you can't, you you just simply can't explain the operations in a cell strictly in terms of its atoms and its subatomic particles. It's just it's not it's not possible. That's why we've got you know cellular biology is to be able to study things the way they are there. Um, information imposes like this additional um, structure or arrangement on top of the the physical parts that it's arranging. So you can't reduce um, information to the the substrate that it's built upon. Now we could use the example of um, like writing on a page. Now, if we reduce writing on a page to its physical parts, you know, all we get are ink and paper, and down below that, you know, we'll get the actual atoms making that stuff up. But what? So, you know, physically, a page of gibberish is exactly the same as a page of, you know, Shakespeare. But what's important is the specific arrangement, arbitrary, the arbitrary arrangement of those, um, of that material into a, a shape that we recognize and that we, you know, that we. Um, agree is meaningful, which is you know phys- with, which is the English language in this case. So it does turn it turn it uh, on its head in the sense that you know everything isn't bottom up. There is a bottom up process, but the bottom up processes from the material world um, basically, I think, um, are the way they are in order so that information can be made, that in order that for that things can become more complex. Now, so of course. Um, so the way I see it is kind of like nested types of information in nested types of information. So we've got this kind of like um, um, circles within circles kind of thing where we've got the material world, um, like, so like atoms and particles. Now those can be used as a substrate for a higher type of information where we've got DNA. Now then the DNA will create um, you know, creatures with specific body plans and those creatures will be conscious to some degree and be able to make life choices. So then on top of that um, biological information, we've got the information that we're able to create as creative beings. So we've got the information not only of um, like literary creations, the things that we're able to, to write or speak or um, artistic, like so the, the, the pictures that we paint or you know, music that we make, etc., We've also got the information structure of our own lives. Now this gets back to the to what the Stoics thought. Um, like I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Epictetus, I believe, he wrote, "For just as wood is the material of the carpenter, bronze that of the statuary, so each individual's own life is the material of the art of living." And Seneca said, "Philosophy molds and constructs the soul. It orders our life, guides our contact, 
our conduct shows us what we should do and what we should leave undone. Without it, no one can live fearlessly or in peace of mind. So we've got all these higher and higher types of information that are made possible by the arrangements of information below them. What does information need? Well, it needs a variable alphabet of a sorts below it. So it needs something that it can arrange in a specific mm-hmm in a specific way that won't be totally determined by that shape. So, we've, And when we look at the way the cosmos is structured, um, we've got our individual choices starting, you know, starting at our level. We've got the choices that we make in our lives where we've got multiple choices open to us, and we choose one of them. And we choose those based on the information that we have val- available, the values that are informing our choices, all that sort of thing. At DNA, we've got this um, you know, sugar phosphate backbone of our DNA all the um, bonding sites for the nucleotides that attach to there, they're all the same. Like, we can attach them arbitrarily. It's, it's there, like, it's, it's not a physically determined structure. It's like, it's like a, a, a Scrabble board. You can put any letter you want um, out of the alphabet that you've got in those positions to make meaningful combinations. And then we go down to, to quantum physics, where we've got the... Um, like quantum probabilities where, um, you know, a particle might, you know, it's got a probability of being here, 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 there, etc. But something happens, some physical process happens, some measurement is taken, and it'll take, it'll, you know, I'd say choose maybe one specific position out of this probability of others. So when we look at all these different levels, we've got, it's like this, this um, system of probabilities where we've got some kind of natural variation at the bottom that can be shaped, um, not, um, not, fi- not fully physically determined. And that's like the foundation for some kind of freedom. On, up to DNA, we've got this you know, backbone that can be arranged in, a, in an arbitrary manner. It's not totally physically determined. And then on top of that, we've got you know, our, our life decisions where we can arrange them however we choose and we can do that we can, now we've got a lot of, we've got a lot more freedom than like a proton for example proton doesn't have any many, many different options open to us open to it but we've got a ton of options and with a ton of options just like when i was talking about all the different possibilities for nine letter words and all the different uh, arrangements we can make there's a whole bunch of possibility for nonsense and unfortunately or fortunately you know either way i think that applies to our lives with so many possibilities available to us, that means we've just got so many more possibilities and ways to screw things up. And I think of, of just by looking at the world, we've been doing that. We've been making the wrong choices consistently in, in almost every field. We've been making choices that have screwed things up. But I think that the, the, one of the things about information theory that's so interesting and kind of hopeful is that there's the possibility of making a better choice of finding the right information, the, the necessary information to inform a better choice, and to be able to do that um, with an awareness of a certain value or a certain, we could call it a certain purpose inherent in the cosmos. That's a part, another part of panpsychism is seeing the world as teleological in nature. That is, um, nature does have purpose. It isn't purposeless, like, a, <clears throat> like Sheldrake talks about in the book is that there are purposes inherent in nature. And if we can kind of figure out or get an idea of what one of those purposes might be, we can, we can um, adapt our behaviors and our, and our choices to come in alignment with that. Mm-hmm. And, the, 
And the way I see it, like the universe does have a specific direction it goes in. Like we can see that things do get more complex, that information gets more complex, that, um, you know, that um, more options become available, and that it seems to be going in the direction of an increase in information, not a decrease in information. And um, I think that by really taking a hard look at everything, um, all areas of knowledge, that we can, by by getting that information, by getting it from all over the place, we can make better informed decisions that will, you know, make the maybe make the future a better place to live in than than um, you know its current trajectory, which doesn't look very good at all. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I think we're going to leave it there uh, for this week, Harrison. Um, all right. Thanks a lot for uh, being on the show. It's been it's been great to talk to you and some very inf- interesting information you've imparted to us. Um, yeah, just to let our listeners know, then we uh, Harrison has a book in process, tentatively called um, Mind Matters, but you know, watch this space because it's in process. There's one other book that's just been released in. in uh, from essentially from Sot or Retro Press uh, is um, by me and Neil Bradley. It's called Manufactured Terror, the Boston Marathon bombing, Sandy Hook, Aurora shooting, and all other false flag attack type things. It's a long title. Uh, you can get it on Kindle so far, but it's going to be in hard print as well, pretty a hard copy pretty soon. Uh, and just so people know, Kindle books, there's a lot of Kindle books uh, produced by our, our group here. Um, you don't have to have a Kindle to read them. If you've got a, if you've got a cell phone, there's a free Kindle uh, app you can get from Amazon's website where you don't even have to buy yourself a Kindle. You can uh, just uh, buy the Kindle book and read it on your phone if you've got a... And they're very affordable. Uh, yeah, exactly. They're very cheap. The Kindle books are very cheap. Um, so yeah, that's about it um, for this week, folks. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back next week with another show. Thanks to our listeners. Join us then. Thank you, Harrison. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.